second year medical student and coordinator for the Emergency Medicine Society. And I also work for the East of England Ambulance Service. So there's no prizes for guessing what speciality I'm leaning towards here. I will be uh, talking to you today about lung cancer. And I'll be presenting this part of the podcast as a bit of a pod case, as I find I remember things more this way. So hopefully you will too. Right, let's get started. Mr J Doe is a 70-year-old male who has been referred to the outpatient lung cancer clinic by his GP. So first of all, what is lung cancer? Well, it's the third most common cancer in the UK. It's where cells in the lungs grow and reproduce uncontrollably with the potential to invade and destroy the surrounding tissues. Approximately 79% of cases are preventable, and sadly only 5% of patients survive for 10 years after diagnosis. There are two types. We've got non-small cell and small cell. Non-small cell can be broken down further into adenocarcinomas, which are cancers of the glandular cells, and these are approximately 80 to 85% of cases. There's also squamous cell carcinoma, which are the cancers of the flat squamous cells lining the inside of the airways. And then we have large cell, which are undifferentiated cells, which can affect any part, and these grow and spread quickly. Small cell carcinomas take up approximately 10 to 15% of cases and used to be called oat cell cancers as the cells look like oats under the microscope. Around 70% of patients with small cell carcinoma will have a cancer that has already spread at the time of diagnosis. Let's move on to the clinical side and talk a bit about Mr Doe's presentation. He's had a persistent cough over the last two months, productive of clear sputum. However, over the last two weeks, the sputum has been blood-tinged. He's also lost some weight. So Mr Doe is presenting with some red flag symptoms. He's had a persistent cough over three weeks. He's got hemoptysis. And he's had unintentional weight loss. And he has also been persistently coughing up phlegm. Other red flags to look out for include pleuritic chest pain, dyspnea, persistent nocturnal cough, wheeze, recurrent chest infections and a history of night sweats. So going back to Mr Doe. You note that his clothes are looking too big and he hurries into the clinic room. He is short of breath. On examination, there is tar staining on his fingers and his fingernails are clubbed. There is a dullness to percussion over the right upper lobe with increased vibration on vocal fremitus. There are reduced breath sounds over the right upper lobe and Mr Doe has marked cervical lymphadenopathy. All these things are consistent with a lung cancer finding. Moving on to risk factors, let's delve into Mr Doe's social history. Mr Doe has spoke 20 a day for the last 20 years, making that 20 pack years. He worked as a sales representative in London for 40 years, taking the tube every day. So, smoking is the cause of around 80% of lung cancer deaths. Pretty stark statistic. Smoking damages the cilia lining the epithelial cells of the lungs and stops them from doing their job the mucociliary escalator. In the context of lung cancer, smoke contains carcinogens such as tar, which increases the likelihood of cancer. Other causes of lung cancer include air pollution, asbestos and diesel exhaust fumes. Mr Doe has been regularly travelling into London on the tube, where there is a great deal of diesel exhaust fumes. There are also genetic risk factors, Patients who have a first-degree relative, such as a parent or a sibling, with lung cancer are at an increased risk. 
Research has been taking place into some of the genes at fault, such as EGFR in young non-smoking adenocarcinomas and KRAS oncogene in small cell lung cancer. I should mention that Mr Doe's initial interaction with the GP will have triggered the two-week cancer referral pathway, as per NICE guidelines. He is over 40, a smoker, and has been experiencing some red flag symptoms. Let's talk now about diagnosis and staging. Mr Doe was sent for a chest x-ray. The report came back showing an opacity in the right upper lobe. Mr Doe was then sent for a staging CT of the chest, abdomen and pelvis. Other chest x-ray findings consistent with lung cancer include lobar collapse, hilar enlargement and pleural effusions. While Mr Doe is waiting for his CT results, let's talk about why we need a CT. So contrast-enhanced CT is used in order to assess the extent of the cancer, how big it is, has it spread to the lymph nodes, and has it spread to any other tissues or metastasized. The main way a patient is staged is by TNM, which is tumour nodes and metastasis. So, remarkably fast, Mr Doe's CT came back as T1, N0, M0. So he's stage 1A. His tumour is 2.5 centimetres in size, no spread to the lymph nodes and no metastasis. This staging has been completed by the multidisciplinary team. A PET scan is also used regardless of the size of the mass to assess the extent of spread. They then need some histological diagnoses to check the type of cells in the cancer, which is usually done by fine needle aspiration, either through the skin or via bronchoscopy. That's usually done with an ultrasound guide, i.e. EBUS. If the cancer has metastasized, other diagnostics tools can be used such as bone scans and MRI scans. So after diagnosis and staging, how is lung cancer treated? It really depends on the patient and their situation. Let's split it into curative intent and non-curative intent. So the main curative interventions might be surgical, so they might do a wedge resection or a full lobectomy. They might use radiotherapy and chemotherapy can be used as an adjunct. Non-curative methods include chemotherapy on its own or endotracheal stenting to relieve some of the bronchial obstruction. Small cell lung cancer is normally treated with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Other medications that fall into the non-curative section but instead try to slow the growth of the tumours are targeted therapies such as angiogenesis inhibitors or EGFR inhibitors. There are also other symptom control medications that can be used, such as bronchodilators, steroids, diuretics and morphine. Mr Doe underwent a wedge resection of his affected lung following MDT approval, and he is doing well. He vows to quit the cigarettes. I think finally, there's a few things to mention with lung cancer that are important to know. First off, mesothelioma. This is a cancer affecting the mesothelial cells of the pleura, there is a strong association with asbestos inhalation. Sadly, this has poor prognosis and chemotherapy is usually used to improve quality of life. Secondly, we've got Horner's syndrome. This is caused by a pancose tumour in the pulmonary apex. It presses on the sympathetic ganglion. It causes a triad of symptoms, including meiosis, partial ptosis and anhydrosis. Thirdly, paraneoplastic syndromes. Now paraneoplastic syndromes arise when the immune system mistakenly starts to attack itself or 
it can be caused by the tumour itself taking on an endocrine function and secreting hormones. Lastly, keep an eye out for nerve palsies associated with lung cancers. Recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy presents with hoarse voice as the tumour presses on the recurrent laryngeal as it passes through the mediastinum. Phrenic nerve palsy can happen due to nerve compression and causes shortness of breath due to diaphragm weakness. So there we have it. We've got lung cancer in a nutshell. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you have any further questions, please don't hesitate to contact the student-led teaching team. Thank you very much.